Open your Bible tonight. We are still in the book of Revelation, chapter 12. And uh, I apologize, I forgot to turn my phone off, and I'll do that right now. Uh, Revelation chapter 12. We've uh, been in chapter 12 for a long time now. And um, uh, um, I I think we're almost ready to get out of it. But uh, there's still, as I read this, there's still things that I, I don't know. I, I'm reluctant a little bit for several reasons that I won't go into right now to move into chapter 13 at the moment. I have uh, done most of my study in the last few weeks on things related to chapter 13, but I'm, I don't know. I just don't feel ready to do it yet. So chapter 13, of course, is a close-up examination of the Antichrist Uh, who he is, where he comes from, what he does, uh, the effect that he has on the world. And I've been looking at that and studying that for a while now, just trying to refresh my mind and look at things from, you know, maybe different angles and all of that. But I don't think I'm quite ready to to go there yet. And uh, a little reluctant also to turn loose to chapter 12 because there's still some things here concerning the nation of Israel that I think concerning God's dealings with the nation of Israel that I think could be, still could be a big blessing to us tonight. Now, the last time that we looked at, at this, uh, last Wednesday night, um, of course, chapter 12 deals with um, a woman who's described here as having the, the clothed with the sun, the moon under her feet, a uh, crown of 12 stars. She's with child. That child is born... Uh, the one, a, a child that will rule the nations with the rod of iron that has to be the Lord Jesus Christ and Israel. Uh, so the woman represents the nation of Israel. She is persecuted by the devil. Uh, Revelation chapter 12 describes a war in heaven. That war is future, not past. That is a war that will take place probably right around the time of the rapture. Um, and, it, and at that time, Satan will be cast out of the heavens and confined uh, to the earth uh, with his angels, so you can imagine, you can imagine his wrath and his his fury when he comes down. And chapter twelve says so that he knows his time is short, and so he increases the persecution against Israel and against any of those who are on the earth at that time who would even think about following Jesus Christ. And there will be some who will make that decision. There'll be 144,000 preachers, uh, Jewish men around the world, preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And there will be people getting saved. At the end of Revelation chapter 7, it describes a multitude that that no man could number. John couldn't count them. Um, And that multitude at the end of Revelation chapter 7 are those who have been saved through the preaching of the 144,000. The beginning of chapter 7 is the 144,000 being sent out, the end of chapter 7 is this multitude from every nation on the earth who have trusted the Lord. So they're going to have quite an impact on this earth. Um, so, so there will be people coming to know the Lord, but, but in the scriptures, in the book of Revelation, it says that those who do come to know the Lord are going to do so at a tremendous cost. It isn't like now. When to get saved, you'll take, you might take a little flack. You might have to have, suffer a little embarrassment. Some families, it's worse than others. And some families, the parents disown you and kids disown you and everything else. But for the most part, um, we're not physically persecuted. We're not normally assaulted. 
physically for our faith. Um, we don't normally have to resist unto blood, you know, in, in this dispensation, or at least in this country. But, of course, in the tribulation, to stand up against the government of the Antichrist and to own Jesus Christ as your Savior, to publicly acknowledge that you followed him and trust him, you're going to pay for that with your life. And so it'll be, it'll be very costly during that tribulation period to really follow the Lord like we claim to do now. A lot of Christians get saved and don't grow as they should, don't read as they should, don't fellowship as they should, don't stay as close to the Lord as they should. They don't, and, and their testimony can be terrible. And, uh, and of course, there's a judgment for that and a loss of rewards for that and a loss of joy for that and sometimes even a loss of your life for that. For this cause, uh, many are sick and even sometimes saints, the saints can sleep, can die because of that. So it's a shame, but it happens. But in the tribulation, uh, you can't even probably begin to consider and, 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 and understand what it's going to cost somebody to truly follow the Lord Jesus Christ, to be saved and truly follow Him. It'll be very, very costly. But there will be many that will do that. And in the midst of all that, Israel is persecuted and uh, Satan tries, if possible, to destroy her. And we're down. We're just going to read those last few verses of the chapter again. And the last time we looked at verse 14, the wings of an eagle. Um, the Bible says in uh, verse 13, when the dragon saw that he was cast into the earth, he persecuted the woman which brought forth the child. So Satan is going to try, if possible, to wipe Israel out. Um, and... Uh, and, but notice that God gives, there's an escape here prepared for her. We looked at that last time. The wings of an eagle. God said to Israel when he brought them out of Egypt and into the wilderness that he carried them on wings like an eagle. And God is going to do that again. He, there will be some means of escape, um, probably some supernatural help on the part of the Lord giving Israel, giving a portion of Israel, a remnant of Israel, this miraculous escape. They're going to be able to get out of wherever they happen to be and to get into this place. It says in verse 14, into the wilderness, into her place. We looked at it before also that not every Jew is going to do that. The, the Bible told us in the book of Ezekiel that two-thirds of the Jews are going to disregard the warning and just stay put. And eventually, over the course of the tribulation, they're killed. So a remnant, a third of Israel will heed the warning and escape, flee into the wilderness. And there it says, in verse number 14, that they will be nourished. And I think that's where we left off last time, nourished. And I gave you a couple of things about nourished. So in other words, God is going to take this small remnant. I looked it up the other day. How many Jews did we... When we remember we looked it up on, in the U.S.? Eight million here in the U.S.? Twelve, yeah, I think it was 12 or 13 million Jews total in the whole world, at which, I don't know, I was kind of flabbergasted that the numbers were that low. I thought it would be much more, but, uh, but it said there were 6 to 7 million in the United States and 6 to 7 million primarily in Israel, and then some few scattered around in many of the, you know, probably every single country has Jewish people living in them. But it's not a vast multitude. So, but a third of them will heed the warnings in the time of the tribulation, probably warnings given to them by Moses and Elijah who are preaching in Jerusalem and 144,000 preachers that are around the world. The message to Israel is to flee. And um, I guess the message to everybody else is to fall on your knees and repent and, and get ready because the king is coming. But uh, Israel will flee into the wilderness and she's going to be nourished there for a time. 
And of course, the Bible, there are many pictures of that in the Old Testament. Elijah uh, was a prophet who, was, uh, who stopped the rain in the heavens for three and a half years, like the three and a half years that Israel will be protected. Elijah was protected. He was fed and nourished by ravens that came and brought meat to him at a brook. And he stayed there until the brook dried up. And then when the brook dried up, he went to a, a city of Zarephath, which would be where present-day Lebanon is. And he was taken care of there by a widow woman, a Gentile widow woman, who sheltered him and fed him for the, the remaining period of that three and a half years. So that's a picture of Israel being protected and nourished during a time of drought. Because the rest of Israel, in the days of Elijah, during that three and a half years, was suffering a tremendous drought. The whole country was in an upheaval because God had stopped the rain at, at the word of Elijah. Elijah had prayed, and God stopped the rain for him. And, uh, but Elijah was sheltered and protected and fed during that whole time of drought. Also, back in the book of Genesis, if you go back there real quick, go back to Genesis chapter 47, and um, we just threw this one at you right as we were going out the door last Wednesday night. I just wanted to get it in there, but uh, there's another picture of this in the Old Testament concerning Joseph. You remember, Joseph is in many, many ways a picture of Jesus Christ because he was betrayed by his brothers, sold for, uh, uh, I don't know if it was 30, might have been 30 pieces of silver or 20 pieces of silver, uh, similar to the way Jesus Christ was betrayed and sold for pieces of silver. Um, He was uh, taken into slavery. He, He ended up in Egypt. And, but in Egypt, during all those uh, years of his persecution, which were 13, if I'm not mistaken, God blessed him and he rose to power. Little by little, he, you know, God blessed him and he ended up, as you know, became, you know, became second to Pharaoh. He's like the king reigning over Egypt. During that time, Pharaoh, I mean, uh, Joseph took a Gentile bride and he had children. But in this meantime, in all these years that Joseph was separated from his brothers... There's a, a famine going on in the land and his brothers and, and end up eventually having to come down to Egypt and to buy bread from, from Joseph, not realizing it's their brother. But then, long story short, if you've read your Bible, you know the story, but eventually Jacob, his father, and all of his brothers realize who Joseph is. Joseph reveals himself to them at the second time they meet, which is pretty significant, the first time Jesus Christ came to his people Israel, they rejected him. But the second time he comes and he reveals himself, they're going to see him and receive him. And so the same is true with Joseph. His brothers came to him the first time and he did not reveal himself to them. They came a second time and he revealed himself to them and they realized it was their brother. And then Joseph took them and all their children and his old father, Jacob, who came all the way down from Canaan and moved into Egypt and came under the protection of Joseph. And in Genesis chapter 47, if you look down in verse number 11 and 12, and Joseph placed his father and his brethren and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had commanded, and Joseph nourished his father. Now that's the first time nourished shows up in the Bible. And the last time the word shows up in the Bible was back in Revelation chapter 12, where God nourishes his people in the wilderness during a time of famine. And notice the last part of this. And all, and, uh, all his father's household with bread um, according to their families. And skip down to verse number um, uh, 
15. And when money failed in the land of Egypt. So what else is happening? There's a famine and the economy has collapsed. What happens in the tribulation? The economy collapses. The money fails. There's plagues. You know, Egypt is the land of plagues. They know, they know a thing or two about plagues. And, uh, but as it was in the days of Joseph, anybody remember Jacob's other name, by the way? Israel. So, you've got the picture here of Joseph bringing Israel into his care, into a protected place in a corner of Egypt, and there in that protected place, while the rest of the country is suffering uh, the famine, they get bread. Nobody else got bread. You know what the rest of the Egyptians had to do to get bread? They had to first give their money. When all their money was gone and the money failed, they had to give their cattle. When the cattle, when they were all out of cattle to give, they had to give their land. At the end of the story, Joseph ends up owning everything. He owns the entire country, all the land, all the cattle. He's got all the money. Jesus Christ is going to own it all too, by the way. It's all going to revert to him. Joseph owned everything. But in Goshen, where the Israel, Jacob and his family lived, they had bread. They not only had bread, I mean, they had the protection of Joseph. So, so, and they were nourished there. So that's definitely an important cross-reference, and it's a picture of what God would do with His people in that little place. Years later, many years later, generations later, after the time of Joseph, <clears throat> the, children, the descendants of Jacob and his brethren are still in Egypt, only now they're not living the life of, uh, you know, the life of plenty up in Goshen. They're servants and slaves. But even then, God was still keeping an eye on them and watching over them and protecting them. They were suffering. But eventually, when the time was right, God sent Moses to deliver them from that. And does anybody remember when, when Moses began to bring all those plagues on the nation of Egypt? The... You know, everything from the flies to the lice to the darkness. Do you remember that those plagues took place in all of Egypt except where? In Goshen. So even then, when Egypt, which is a type of the world, when Egypt was suffering under the pestilence and the plagues, Israel was being protected by God in that little corner, um, in fact, I think it's in Exodus. If you go to Exodus, I jotted Exodus chapter 10. Exodus chapter 10. We're just looking at this uh, just recently with someone. Exodus chapter 10 and verse 23. It says, uh, when, uh, 22, Exodus 10, 22, Moses stretched forth his hand toward heaven. There was a thick darkness in all the land of Egypt for three days. They saw not one another. That's pretty dark. Neither rose any from his place for three days, so you couldn't even, couldn't even move because you don't know where you're going. You can't see anybody. I mean, that's dark. That's not just, you know, that's not an eclipse. This is like total, absolute darkness. Can God really do that? Man, he sure can. And he does it again. It happens in the tribulation. And so there's complete and total darkness for three days, so dark that nobody even can move out of their places. And it says, uh, but, look at the last part of verse 23, but all the children of Israel had light in their dwellings. <laughs> so, once again, you see God 
taking care of his people in the midst of a world that's being judged. Egypt represents the world. Here's the judgments of God on the world as it was in the days of Joseph. It was the same in the days of Moses. So there's a, there's a, like a protection. There's a little cocoon, a, li- a little bit, if you will, around the nation of Israel. Go to Psalm 55. Psalm 55. You know what you're looking at right now? You are looking at the future. I'm glad I have a book that tells me the future. You guys all the time, you know, newscasters and everybody else trying to predict what's going to happen, you know, where the world is going, what this means and what that means. You've got a lot of Bible preachers too. You know, they're all over the place, all over the Internet. Everybody's got their opinion. But you know what we have? We have a book that tells us the future. It tells us what's coming. And all of it isn't completely clear. Some of it is probably not going to be clear until people are in the midst of the tribulation and they open up some of these books. In fact, the book of Daniel says most of the book of Daniel isn't really going to be understood until you're in the tribulation. And then when a Jew opens it up, now it's going to make sense. So sometimes we're trying to make sense of things that we aren't even... uh, aren't even equipped to make sense of. God will not allow it. It's, it's sealed up until the time of the end. But we can still look at those things and see what God will show us, at least for the near future, that, so we can know that those days are coming closer. Uh, but anyway, in Isaiah... Where did I send you? Psalm. Okay, and I turned to Isaiah. That doesn't work. Okay, let me get there with you. Psalm 55. Psalm 55. Go down to... Um, down there somewhere around... Uh, I think we're on verse number 3. Psalm 55, verse 3. Because of the voice of the enemy, now as we read some of these verses, um, I started again in my reading. I went, I'm starting back at the beginning of Isaiah. And I just decided to go back through all the prophets again. Isaiah, you know, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, and all that, and go all the way through the prophets. But this time, I'm just looking, I just want to see it with like a fresh viewpoint and just... Look at it again for those verses that might have some relevance for the days that we're in right now and the days that are coming just ahead, especially those things that relate to the nation of Israel. And even here in the book of Psalms, many of these verses, when you think of it as... Because when the Spirit of God inspired these things centuries ago and gave these words to the prophets and that wrote them down, The Holy Spirit, many times, was not speaking about things that would come to pass in that prophet's lifetime. But many times the Holy Spirit is speaking about things that were centuries in the future. 2,000, 3,000 years in the future. There were many times the prophets wrote down things that they had no idea what God was talking about. And when they inquired, God sometimes would just tell them, it's not for you to know now, just write it down. And so when you read through the Old Testament, many of those verses have uh, implications for things way in the future. And, of course, now what was way in the future back then, it's right now upon us. But notice this in verse 3. Because of the voice of the enemy, because of the oppression of the wicked, for they cast iniquity upon me, and in wrath they hate me, my heart is sore pained within me, and the terrors of death are fallen upon me. Might Israel say those very things? Probably as the persecution increases. They've been through horrible days in the past, but the Bible says the tribulation will be like nothing they've ever experienced, like nothing the world has ever seen. So it'll be much worse than even the Holocaust for the nation of Israel. And these might be words that when when they pick up this passage of Scripture, these things are going to be 
very, very relevant to them at that moment. It says, fearfulness and trembling are come upon me, and horror hath overwhelmed me. And I said, oh, that I had wings, for then would I fly away. Lo, then would I wander far off and remain in the wilderness. Whoa, really? Yeah, you're not kidding. That might be something somebody's thinking in the tribulation when they're seeing, they're turning back to the Scriptures, probably a book that many of them haven't looked at seriously in a long time, and they open up the Word of God and they start to read, and then they begin to understand the things that are happening around them and happening to them. They get to a place like this, Oh, that they could have wings like a dove and just fly away into the wilderness. Notice what it says. Lo, then would I wander far off and remain in the wilderness. Selah. I would, watch this, verse 8. I would hasten my escape from the windy storm and tempest. Does that sound familiar to you? Go over to Isaiah chapter 32. Isaiah chapter 32. Isaiah 32, 1. Behold, a king shall reign in righteousness, and princes shall rule in judgment. Watch verse 2. And a man shall be, a hide, and a man shall be as a hiding place from the wind and a covert from the tempest. Well, that's exactly what the psalmist said he wanted. I wish I had wings that I could just fly away into the wilderness and find a place to escape from the wind and the tempest. Notice Isaiah 32 said God is going to provide a man who will be a hiding place from the wind and a covert from the tempest. Remember what happened to Israel in the wilderness for those 40 years? As rivers of water in a dry place. As the shadow of a great rock in a weary land. And the eyes of them that see shall not be dim and the ears of them that hear shall not be shall not hearken, shall hearken. You know, what is, that's a picture of the, the Jewish people fleeing for refuge and notice the hiding place that God provides them is not necessarily some unique um, geological feature that keeps them safe from their enemies. I think their covering and their protection is going to be a man. Their shelter and their refuge is going to be the Lord Himself. And they're going to find that refuge in a wilderness place. And God will be to them in that place. Uh, there will be rivers again of water like there was in the wilderness for them. And provision for them in the wilderness. Um, in the book of Matthew, it tells them that at a certain sign, when they see it in Jerusalem, they're to flee. They're not even supposed to go back into their house and get anything. Just flee. So that means they're going out into the wilderness without any means to feed themselves or take care of themselves in any way. So if God brings them out into that wilderness, and Revelation 12 said He's going to nourish them there for a time, times, and half a time. That's three and a half years. And if He's going to take care of them for three and a half years in a wilderness place, where's the food coming from? Where's the water coming from? Well, that, was no, that wasn't difficult for the Lord the first time He took Israel out into the wilderness. He gave them what? That wasn't hard. They, they thought it was going to be impossible. You brought us out here to die. And God says, really? Watch this. He just gave them water out of a rock. Just gave them bread from heaven every day. That wasn't difficult. So this isn't going to be hard for God to sustain several million people out in the wilderness. He did it the first time. You know, 
The thing that will be is the thing that's already been, the Bible tells us, right? You want to know the future, you read the past, right? And so what God did in the past is simply what God is going to do again in the future. So Israel is going to be protected again, sheltered again. And it's there in the wilderness that they're going to finally, this generation, this last generation in Israel is going to finally know their God. They're going to meet him like they did in the wilderness. You know, they didn't know the God the first time that took them out into the wilderness. God had to introduce himself to Moses at that burning bush. And Israel didn't know their God. And so God allowed them to see who he was. And it was there in the wilderness at Mount Sinai that he gave them his law. And they became a nation. And so finally they'll become a nation again in the wilderness in the future. Go over to Isaiah chapter 35. Isaiah 35. Look at verse 1. The wilderness and the solitary place shall be glad for them. And the desert shall rejoice and blossom as the rose. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice even with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given unto it in the excellency of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord in the excellency of our God. Strengthen ye the weak hands and confirm the feeble knees. Say to them that are of a fearful heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. Even God with a recompense, he will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened. Remember, we just read that in Isaiah 32, 3. And the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. The eyes are going to see, the ears are going to hear. Where is that going to happen in the wilderness? When is that going to happen? Right after we go. Saints, the New Testament church is going to be going up in the rapture. And right after that, God is going to there's going to be a separation in Israel. Some will stay behind and be persecuted and die, and some are going to flee as they were commanded and go out into the wilderness. Let's go back to Revelation chapter 12. And let's look at... Um, uh, we already read uh, where it says a time and a times and half a time, and that corresponds to verse number 6 of chapter 12 where it says a thousand two hundred and three score days, which is also uh, three and a half years. Um, and I think if you go back to chapter 11, you'll see uh, something similar back there in chapter 11, verse 2. It says, um, the holy city shall they tread underfoot 42 months. That's three and a half years. Um, and verse number 3, and I will give power unto my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and three score days. There it is again. So all through the book of Revelation, you see that same period of time coming up, three and a half years. It's just expressed different ways. 42 months. 1260 days, and sometimes it's called a time, times, and half a time. It's also called time, times, and half a time in the book of Daniel. So it's speaking about that same period of time in which Israel is under the special protection of the Lord. And God does it like he did in the book of Hosea. He brings them out into the wilderness so that he can, in a sense, marry them again. Like we, the story of Hosea. His wife was a prostitute. She had children with him, but then she left him. And Hosea would have been justified, I guess, to have just divorced her and gone on. But God said, I don't want you to do that. I want you to bring her out into the wilderness and I want you to win her back to you. I want you to woo her. I want you to speak kindly to her. And I want you to win her affection, cause her to love you again. And the Bible says he made Hosea do that because that's what God intended to do with the nation of Israel. Bring her into the wilderness and win her back to himself. And uh, so it's quite a love story. And Israel is going to not only fall in love with the Lord, but be saved again and be a nation again with God as her head. All right, back to Revelation chapter 12. Um, look at it, it says, notice what the devil tries to do. Verse number 15. And the serpent cast out of his mouth 
You know, he's not going to be content. He's not going to let a third of the nation of Israel just run into the wilderness and, you know, get away. I mean, he'll be working all over the place to try to destroy everything he can that remains of Israel. And the serpent cast out of his mouth water, water as a flood after the woman, that it might cause her to be carried away of the flood. And verse 16, and the earth helped the woman and the earth opened her mouth and swallowed up the flood, which the dragon cast out of his mouth. That is really, really interesting. So Satan, in an effort to just wash Israel, wipe her off the face of the earth, does something here, um, and he casts the flood out of his mouth. Let's go and just see what that could possibly mean. Go to Isaiah chapter 17, and we're going to look at how the earth helps her and protects her, what that means. Uh, Isaiah chapter 17. Satan casting a flood out of his mouth. It's not so hard to understand. It probably, although we don't want to be dogmatic about it, but it probably doesn't mean literal water. I mean, it could. The devil would certainly be able to do that if he wanted to. But when you compare Scripture with Scripture, you'll see that often in the, in the Bible, um, the, the onslaught of the ungodly against you is likened to a flood just overwhelming you. David spoke of that in the Psalms on two occasions where he called like the attack, the sudden overwhelming attack of his enemies like a flood just like washing over him. And here in Isaiah chapter 17, it says the same thing. Uh, look in uh, verse number 12. Woe to the multitude of many people which make a noise like the noise of the seas and to the rushing of nations that make a rushing like the rushing of mighty waters, a flood. You know, an attack, the nations ganging up on Israel. Why would it say it came out of the serpent's mouth? What would that be? Do you know how many wars have been started by some guy's mouth? How many times? Wouldn't you have to say, I mean, if you've ever watched the newsreels and know anything about history and seen the, the speeches that Hitler made and seen him, the way that he could hold 100,000 people in those stadiums spellbound. You know what? You know what kept that war going? His mouth. The rhetoric. And he launched quite a flood with his mouth. And so out of the serpent's mouth, he sends a flood after this woman. Notice it says in verse 13, Isaiah 17:13, "The nations shall rush like the rushing of many waters." And God is going to get nervous and not know what to do. But God shall rebuke them. No, it's not going to bother God. And they shall flee far off and shall be chased as the chaff of the mountains before the wind and like a rolling thing before the whirlwind. So Satan is going to send a flood after the nation of Israel. Armies, you know, warfare, just try to overwhelm her. You know, some of them are getting away. They're going into the wilderness. He's not going to just wave goodbye. He's going to try and, you know, try and annihilate them. But of course, the Lord is going to stand up to protect uh, to protect the nation. Go over to Psalm 124. Psalm 124. Psalm 124. Look down in... Uh, actually, the whole psalm, actually. It's a short one. <clears throat> psalm 124. 
If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, now may Israel say, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side when men rose up against us, then they had swallowed us up quick when their wrath was kindled against us. Then the waters had overwhelmed us. The stream had gone over our soul. Then the proud waters had gone over our soul. Blessed be the Lord who hath not given us as a prey to their teeth. Our soul is escaped as a bird. Eh. Out of the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken and we are escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. You know, the, the ungodly, the floods of the ungodly that come after Israel. And if it had not been the Lord who stands up for Israel at that time, then she would have been overwhelmed. The waters just would have washed it away. But God, but God protects her. And uh, God does actually more than protect her. The Bible says the earth helps her. We're going to look at that in a second. Uh, go over to Isaiah chapter 59. Isaiah chapter 59. I read a strange verse, by the way. And I don't know exactly what to make out of this, but in Exodus chapter 15... It's talking about Pharaoh. In Exodus chapter 14, Pharaoh and all of his army drown in the Red Sea. Remember, the children of Israel went through the Red Sea, and they got safely on the other side, and Moses is on the other side, and he, he smites the, the waters with the staff, and all of a sudden the waters come back over the, uh, the Egyptian army. And Exodus chapter 15 is the song that Moses wrote to celebrate the destruction of the nation of Israel, and they're singing... Exodus 15 are the words of a song. And in Exodus chapter 15, in the words of that song, Moses said, the earth opened up and swallowed Pharaoh and his army. And I've wondered, like, you know, people have scoffed that anything like that could have ever actually happened because if that many, you know, hundreds of thousands of soldiers and chariots and spears and shields had drowned in the Red Sea... Why aren't there any remnants of it? How come on the bottom of that you know, Red Sea you don't find any of that stuff? I'm just wondering if the earth literally... Hey, it did in the days of Dathan and Abiram and Korah when the enemies of Moses rose up against him and, re and, and tried to overthrow Moses' authority. Anybody remember what happened in the book of Numbers? God said uh, to Moses, tell everybody to get back, get away from those three guys because the earth is going to open up. And sure enough, right in front of their eyes, God just opened up the earth, and those guys, the earth swallowed them. It said swallowed them, as Moses was watching. Exodus chapter 15 says the earth swallowed Pharaoh. The earth opened and swallowed Pharaoh and his army. So, I'm thinking maybe. I only saw it today when I was looking at it again. I'm wondering if Pharaoh actually even drowned, you know, in his army. I mean... If it means what it says, and if God did it in the wilderness with sort of enemies of Moses from within the camp, then why couldn't God have done it with those Moses, with the enemies of Israel that were from without the camp and just swallowed up the Egyptian army and taken them down? But the Bible says that the earth is going to open up, the earth is going to swallow those waters and help the woman. So that means in the tribulation, there are going to be some supernatural things happening to keep Israel safe. But go over to um, Isaiah. Where did I send you? Isaiah 59. Is that where we were going? Isaiah 59. Okay, go over there. And look at verse number 16. Isaiah 59, 16. And uh, he saw that there was no man. 
and wondered. This, the he here is God. You know, Israel needed a Israel needed a protector. Israel needed another Moses. Israel needs in this time a mediator, someone that. Right? When they were helpless and in captivity in Egypt, what did God do? God raised up an individual, a man, Moses. And then God gave that man the ability, the power, the protection of God to go down there and prove to Israel that he was their mediator, their savior in a sense, and he brought them out. And so this is speaking about a future time when Israel is in trouble again. And it says, and God looked and saw there was no man. He found a man in the days of Moses. God always looks for a man. He seeks for a man. Somebody that would be willing, someone who would be willing to stand in the gap. Somebody who, you know, like Isaiah who would say, you know, here am I, send me, I'll go. You know, a volunteer. You know, the Lord looks for guys like that. I mean, even now, you know, who's going to reach your neighbors unless God finds someone to do it? And not everybody's willing to go. God's always looking for that person. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no intercessor. Therefore, what did God do? Therefore, his arm. God said, nobody else will do it. I'm going, to go, I'm going to go myself. This is a verse often applied to our salvation and our redemption. When God looked on the earth and he saw that you and I needed a redeemer, could he have found one among the men that were here on earth? No. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So he couldn't find one qualified to be a true intercessor, one who could be a mediator between God and men. Because every man that God could have chosen would have been in need of a Savior himself. So God looked and he saw there's no intercessor. There's no, there's no one who could redeem the world. Nobody who could save men's souls. So what did God do? It says, therefore, his arm brought salvation unto him and his righteousness, it sustained him. For he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation upon his head. And he put on the garments of vengeance for clothing and was, was clad with zeal as a cloak. Now, those verses have application to the cross that has to do with Jesus Christ coming to be our Savior when he saw that there was none righteous, no, not one, and nobody could redeem us. Nobody could go to the cross and die for you and me. No human that was alive on the earth at that time. It had to be someone like God himself. It had to be God himself who would just come from heaven, be born as a man. He had to, he had to do it himself. This is God himself doing it. He put on righteousness. He put on those garments of vengeance, in a sense. Well, he did it at the cross, but he's going to do it again in the future. When God sees his nation Israel in this situation, and there is no Moses. The world has its Antichrist, but Israel doesn't have its Moses. And so what does God do? God says, I'm going to do it myself. And uh, so the Lord himself comes and appears to them in the wilderness. And they, as the Bible says, they shall look upon me whom they have pierced. It says, verse number 18, according to their deeds, this is the world, according to their deeds, accordingly, he will repay fury to his adversaries, recompense to his enemies, to the islands, he will repay recompense. So shall they fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun, when the enemy shall come in like a flood. The Spirit of the Lord shall lift up a standard against him. And the Redeemer shall come to Zion. And unto them that turn from transgression in Jacob, saith the Lord. So again, the, the enemy, the, the serpent, casts a flood out of his mouth. And he stirs up the nations and the armies of the world against Israel. Hey, we're almost there right now. They barely have a friend in this world. And 
America's not much of a friend at all. So they don't have a friend left in this world. And it wouldn't take much for someone like an Antichrist to just stir, stir up the wrath and the vengeance of the nations finally against Israel to try to destroy what remains of them. But the Lord, when the enemy comes in like a flood, the Lord is going to stand up for them and protect them and nourish them in the wilderness. Now, what about the earth helping? You know what? If you think about it, there are a lot of times down through history where you can't explain how a godly nation was preserved had it not been for some supernatural help of God. You ever read about the Spanish Armada when the King James Bible in England was being translated and the popes had tried for centuries to overthrow the uh, Reformation and the nation of England and to snuff out the gospel witness. They'd been hunting the Albigenses. They'd been hunting the Waldensians. They'd been trying to like wipe, all down through history, they'd been trying to wipe out the Word of God, wipe out anybody that wouldn't submit themselves to the, the authority of Rome. Well, in the days of the Reformation, things were, for the Catholic Church, getting really out of hand. You know, there were nations that were just throwing off the shackles of Catholicism and, and turning away from the Pope and and England seemed to be the source of all of that. And these Bibles that were coming out of England, you know, the Wycliffe Bible, then the Tyndale Bible, and then, and then leading up to the King James Bible. And when the King James Bible was being prepared, right around that same time, I believe it was around that same time, uh, the, the nation of Spain, with the encouragement of Italy, raised up an army of hundreds of ships that were going to sail against England. And England was unprepared and ill-equipped and it's not a long distance from Spain to England, <laughs> just right up the, the coast of Europe. And what happened? A storm in the English Channel sank, I think, two-thirds of the Spanish ships. They, they limped back to Spain. They tried it again two years later, refitted their ships, tried it again. Guess what happened? A storm in the English Channel sent them packing back to Spain. Now, that was some... The earth helped England. You know why? Your Bible wasn't done yet. It was getting prepared. And God wasn't going to let that nation get overthrown until this got finished. The earth helped. Nature helped. God, God controls the winds. God just said, winds blow. No big deal for God. And... So even nature itself and the earth itself, it's happened many times. I don't know if you've ever read, I got a little, um, when we were in Israel on one of the last trips we were over there, we brought back videos of, that you buy in the stores over there uh, on the wars of Israel, like the, the wars that they have fought since 1948 until the present time. You know, the War of Independence, the Six-Day War, the Yom Kippur War, and things like that. And you know, in every single one of those... And many of the many of cases, these some of these generals are agnostic Jews. You know, they don't. Some of them, some of these Jewish generals, don't even believe that there is a God. You know, they're just proud and patriotic toward Israel, and they're not necessarily believers even in the Jewish idea of God. But many times they acknowledge on these tapes that somebody was looking out for us. Some, you know, you know, God or whatever people want to call him. Somebody was. Somebody did supernatural because those wars that they won are just hard to explain if it wasn't God just supernaturally guiding the timing of things, the weather. The weather at times allowed them to get a victory. And 
the hand of God. The earth was helping. Nature was helping. God was guiding those things. Go back with me to the book of Judges. I'll show you one that has um, an example of that that actually has implications for the tribulation. If you go back to the book of Judges, you'll probably remember this, um, this victory. There was, um, there was a time, if you remember in the book of Judges, the, the children of Israel, this was before the days of the kings. And, um, and Israel, after the death of Joshua, uh, they didn't yet have kings to rule over them. And um, they just had men that they called judges. People who would be in some kind of an authority. You could go to them for, you know, to judge a matter, to decide a matter. They trusted in certain individuals for leadership when they were needed. But for most of that period of the, the judges, Israel would... Um, be disobedient to God, they would get rebellious, and what would God do? He would allow some nation to persecute them and rule over them. Sometimes the Midianites, sometimes the Canaanites, sometimes this nation, sometimes that nation, the Philistines, and sometimes that time of persecution would last 20 years, 30 years, 40 years. Some of them lasted 40 years. In other words, they would be back in bondage under some foreign oppressor. And then what would they do? They'd finally get their heart right, the nation would, they'd repent, And when they did that, God would raise up a leader, a judge. Samson was one of them. Jephthah was one of them. Men like that who would, for a short temporary period of time, would lead the nation, you know, like a Braveheart or something like that. You know, come on, we can get them. And so they would go into battle because their hearts were right with God. God would give them the victory. And that guy, that judge for that period of time would rule over them and and guide the nation. And then this happened 13 times in the book of Judges. They would do great for a while. God would give them a victory for a while. But human nature being what it is, what would happen? Give them, just give them a few years. And they're back in sin. And God would take his blessing off of them. And they'd be back in oppression. Back under the bondage of some foreign oppressor. And they would stay under that for a while. And then God would, they would repent. And God would send them another judge, a leader. Well, there was a period in which they had been under oppression for 20 years under the Canaanites. And there was no man. It was one of those times when God looked around and he couldn't find a man. So you know what God did? He got a woman. There was a woman named Deborah. And um, she wasn't a general or anything like that. She was actually a prophetess. And so she had a close relationship with God. And you go back to Judges chapter 4. And anyway, in Judges chapter 4, verse number 4, she was a prophetess. And uh, she judged Israel at that time. She dwelt under the palm tree. Uh, and she sent, she sent word to this general, to a soldier named Barak. And she says to Barak, listen, God has shown me that he's going to give us the victory over the Canaanites. Go get it. And he wants you to go get an army together. Go raise up 10,000 soldiers and we're going to go against the Canaanites. Well, Barak said, all right, I'll do that. But on one condition, you're going with me. So Deborah said, all right, if that's the way you want it, but guess what? God's not going to give you the glory for it. You know, God's going to give the glory for this victory to a woman. That's what you want? Barak said, that's okay with me. So Deborah and Barak went out to battle together. Barak gathered up an army of 10,000, which sounds like a lot, but they were still outnumbered by the Canaanites. And the long story short, they go into this battle and they like, and, the, and they overwhelm the enemy The Canaanites are put to flight and the king or the general that was in charge of the Canaanites, he flees. He goes running, hides in, hides somewhere. 
and a woman named Jael sees this general, Sisera, hiding, the general from the enemy, and while he's sleeping, she puts a, she gives him a real headache. She puts a spike right through his temple and kills him. That's Judges chapter 4. Judges chapter 5, guess what Deborah does? Apparently she had some music ability because she writes a song. Like Moses did after the great victory at the Red Sea. This victory was so tremendous that all of Judges chapter 5 is a song. Go to Judges chapter 5. Then sang Deborah and Barak, the son of Abiram, on that day, saying... Now, the rest of chapter 5 is a song. They're singing to rejoice about, you know, praise the Lord for this incredible, miraculous victory that we just won against outrageous odds. But notice as you read down through this song, they didn't win this battle because of their military uh, skill. But it goes down through here, it says in verse number 12, verse number 12 of chapter 5, Awake, awake, Deborah, awake, awake, utter a song, arise, Barak, and lead thy captivity captive. Oh, by the way, does that sound like anything you've read before? You ever read in the New Testament where it says of Jesus Christ? that he led captivity captive. Ephesians chapter 4, it's a quote from the book of Psalms. And this song that Deborah is singing and the victory that they won over the Canaanites is actually a preview, a prophetic preview of the tribulation. Because it's, it points to the time when Jesus Christ spiritually would take those who were in Abraham's bosom in the Old Testament, that was captivity. The saints from the Old Testament who were spiritually kept there until the time of the cross when God could offer a perfect sacrifice. What did Jesus Christ do? He went down uh, to those that were in Abraham's bosom. And according to Ephesians chapter 4, he led captivity captive. He took all those Old Testament saints with him and took them to heaven. So that was fulfilled spiritually. But it's going to get fulfilled physically and literally in the future in the tribulation, when the Lord fulfills the prophecy of Deborah and Barak, when he leads captivity captive. Look at the rest of this song. It says, skip down to verse, just to save a little time, go down to verse 18. Zebulun and Naphtali were a people that jeoparded their lives, because not all the twelve tribes sent people to fight in this fight. Only two of the tribes. So I'm not, I'm just curious if it happens to be one third, I don't know. But, Ten of the tribes won't, don't send any, won't send any soldiers. Um, Deborah tells Barak, round up an army. And nobody will send anyone, not even Judah. So the only tribes that send soldiers are Zebulon and Naphtali, were a people that jeoparded their lives unto the death in the high places of the field. The kings came and fought. Then fought the kings of Canaan and Teanach by the waters of Megiddo. You know where that's at, right? There's a big battle coming there in the future. The Valley of Armageddon. That's Megiddo. So this valley, this battle that took place centuries and centuries before even King David and the Lord Jesus Christ is a preview. It's a prophecy of something that's going to happen in the future. And it says, so this battle took place in Megiddo. They took no gain of money. Watch this, verse 20. They fought from heaven. They had help from heaven in this battle. Uh, 
The stars in their courses fought against Sisera. The river of Kishon swept them away. That ancient river, the river Kishon. O my soul, thou hast trodden down strength. That army went out against the Canaanites. And you know what? God turned on the water. Because it says back in chapter... um, Chapter, same chapter, verse 4 and 5. It says, The earth trembled, the heavens dropped, the clouds also dropped water, the mountains melted from before the Lord. So, Deborah is singing about a time when God just turned on the water and, it, and some kind of a torrential downpour occurred at the river Kishon. There's a river that flows right through the valley of Armageddon. And God sent a torrential downpour and it was so bad, somewhere in here it talks about the horse's Um, Oh, the next verse, verse 22. Then were the horse hooves broken by the means of the prancings. So what happens? The water is coming so fast. Uh, Sisera had 900 chariots of iron. So this would have been like Sherman tanks against guys with spears. You know, he was armed with weapons of iron. And so it would have been impossible for the nation of Israel to ever won, ever to have won this battle. So they get down into the valley of Armageddon. What does God do? He just sends a flood. So the earth helped. The stars, the heavens even fought against them. That's what Deborah's singing about. They're thanking God. Look, thank you, Lord, for this miraculous victory. Thank you for saving the nation. Thank you for delivering us from the enemy. And even the horses are trampling and breaking their feet and breaking their shoes because the water is just tumbling everything around and everything's getting swept away the prancings of their mighty ones. So God brought a great victory, but it wasn't because of Israel's superior military ability. Nature did it. God just destroyed that army by His power. What happens in the tribulation? Once again, the earth helps the woman. And and Satan tries to send this flood, this, this onslaught of the nations and armies and the whole world against Israel But there are going to be some supernatural things that happen that keep Israel from suffering in those days. And I wish we had the time, but we can't do it tonight. But that little expression in Judges chapter 5, verse 12, you might want to underline those first two words. Awake, awake. That's what some of you need to do right now. Awake, awake. Awake, awake. You know why? That little expression, awake, awake, is only in the Bible four times. And wherever that happens, God is always using those fourfold things to draw your attention to something. Especially when you find four and one of them is separated from the others. Like home plate in a baseball diamond. One of those times where awake, awake appears is right here in Judges. The other three times are in the book of Isaiah. And in the book of Isaiah, chapter 51 and chapter 52, it is Israel crying out to God, Lord, Awake, awake, put on strength, come and help us, deliver us, please save us. God responds later in chapter 51. God says to Jerusalem, awake, awake, I'm on my way, in a sense. At the end of chapter 52, God says for the third time, awake, awake, Jerusalem, put on the garments of praise. It indicates The battle is over, and Jerusalem is restored, and there's joy, and there's rejoicing. And that's chapter 51, chapter 52. Does anybody remember who's in chapter 53? 
The Lord Jesus Christ is in chapter 53. And in chapter 54, Israel is restored to her former glory. Isaiah 54, verses 1 and 2. You know what you have? Isaiah 51, 52, 53, 54, those four chapters, are a preview of God bringing Israel into the wilderness, waking her up, coming to her defense, cleansing of her sin. You ought to go read those four chapters sometime. You'll get a huge blessing out of it. God comes in and saves her, cleanses her, restores her. Chapter 53 is where He shows her her Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. She finally gets to see Him in the wilderness. Isaiah chapter 54, Israel is restored to her glory, her former glory. So that wilderness experience in the tribulation is something else for that nation. That is one incredible time for the nation of Israel. Let's close with this. One last verse of Scripture. Isaiah chapter, 5, uh, Isaiah chapter 35. Isaiah chapter 35. Go down to, uh, let's go down to verse number, verse number 5. <clears throat> Isaiah 35, 5. <clears throat> then, <clears throat> we already read the first four verses with the wilderness being a place of refreshment for the nation of Israel, the wilderness blossoming in the first few verses. We read that. The, uh, it shall blossom abundantly. The people of Israel come to a knowledge of the Lord. He tells them that the eyes, verse 5, the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Now watch this, verse 6. Then shall the lame man leap as in heart, and the tongue of the dumb sing, for in the wilderness shall waters break out, and streams in the desert. And the parched ground shall become a pool in the thirsty land, springs of water in the habitation of dragons, where each lay shall be grass with reeds and rushes. And a highway shall be there, and a way, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it, but it shall be for those, the wayfaring men, though fools, shall not err therein. No lion shall be there, nor any ravenous beast shall go up thereon. It shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And watch this, verse 10. What are they going to do? They get out in the wilderness, and the Lord nourishes them there, shows them there, reveals Himself to them there like he did to Thomas in the upper room. Finally, they're going to look upon those pierced hands and that pierced side. He said, they shall look upon me whom they have pierced. In Zechariah chapter 12. And they're going to, they're going to mourn. They're going to repent. They're going to realize this is our Savior. This is our God. Like Isaiah 53 says. And what's the outcome of that? Well, they're going to go back to Jerusalem. I don't know when, at what point in the tribulation they leave the wilderness, but they go into the wilderness at around that time in Revelation chapter 12. So that means they've got to come out because later when Jesus Christ returns against the Antichrist, He returns from Mount of Olives and down through the eastern gate and into the city of Jerusalem and destroys the Antichrist and his armies and Israel is there. So somehow they got from the wilderness back to Jerusalem. It talks about a highway here. It says in verse number 10, And the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with songs and everlasting joy upon their heads. 
They shall obtain joy and gladness and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. You know what you're reading about? You're reading about the salvation of a nation. God saving an entire nation at once. The Bible says, shall a nation be born in a day? Is that actually possible? Could an entire nation come to know the Lord in one day? That's what happens. In one day, they come to look upon Him and come to trust Him. And then God brings them out of that place in safety and with joy back to the, back to the city of Jerusalem. All right, and then, uh, and then at that time, the Lord returns and sets up His kingdom. And that ends uh, Revelation chapter 12. Uh, the last verse of that uh, just shows us that uh, the last verse of chapter 12 just says, The dragon was wroth with the woman, went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. So he's unrelenting during that period of time, and God continues to defend them. So then in chapter 13, we'll look at this starting next Wednesday night, in chapter 13, we have a close-up of the person of the Antichrist himself. Who is this guy that has all of this supernatural power to run the world, to take over the world, to take over the economy, to take over the religion, to actually control the world for a brief period of time? So we're going to look again at his characteristics, where he comes from, and, um, and, and see from other places in the Scripture how, he, how he's able to pull that off. All right. Well, thank you uh, for your attention. So glad you're here tonight. And um, you have a book that you can trust. You have a book that you can trust. And if you and I would just be diligent and read it, and read it like we should instead of just carry it around under our arm, if we'll read it, God will help us to be a people prepared for the times that we're living in and for the things that are coming. Let's not be unprepared. Let's not be unprepared. Let's not be ignorant. Let's not stick our heads in the sand and just hope it'll all go away. And don't be so foolish that to think that as long as we can get a Republican in the White House, things are going to improve. Let's not, let's not be that crazy because things are way too far gone for that to have much of an impact. The world is already running off the edge of the cliff. So we better be, we better be somebody whose hope is not in a Republican in the White House. We better be some people whose hope is in the Lord and who are familiar with the words of this book. Let's not be, let's not be ignorant, all right? Okay, thank you for being here tonight, and uh, let's pray. All right. Father, we are so grateful.